1: whole life almost a decade so I cut my fair share but
2: uh right on where are you now Kevin I'm in Kelowna oh okay yeah so you went to the sunny south
1: yeah I I went from one side to the other I couldn't take any more rain I figured I spent half my life there it would take another half a lifetime to dry out (laughs) so maybe we'll just uh we'll get going on this episode and I can send you on your day sounds great today I'm joined by the president of the National Firearms Association uh, Sheldon Clare. Thanks for joining me today.
2: My pleasure, Kevin. Glad to be here.
1: So, Sheldon, perhaps before we get to the NFA and your role in, in the National Firearms Association, you can just give the listeners uh, the lowdown on who you are.
2: Sure. Uh, well, I've been a firearms rights uh, advocacy uh, person probably my most of my life. I started out with shooting when I was a... Uh, about 10 going to the gravel pit with my my dad and my brothers to sight in the 22s and uh, get ready for going hunting moved up to the uh, p17 bsa uh, 30-06 and uh, joined army cadets when i was 13 years old Uh, went right through that whole program became a cadet instructor's list officer and and went through all of that Uh, uh, competed in DCRA, BCRA competitions, taught marksmanship teams throughout, throughout the 80s, coached biathlon. I, I still do some biathlon work as an official. Uh, uh, I'm actually a, a qualified technical delegate with Biathlon Canada. And I was told back when Bill C-51 came out in the 1970s that there were certain firearms I couldn't buy. And, and I couldn't see the sense of that. Why, why couldn't I buy something other people could buy? and I've pretty much been arguing for firearms rights improvement ever since. I got involved with the National Firearms Association in 1987, and I worked through the ranks there, field officer, became a branch president under our old structure, and I was elected president by our board of directors in 2010. In my day job, I teach history and technical business communications at the College of New Caledonia and Prince George. And I believe I've been there now some 28 years.
1: Wow. So I did a bit of, uh, you know, I Googled you. Um,
2: (laughs) Well, that would be fun.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, I dug up a few skeletons, um, you know, besides being an accomplished bagpipe player.
2: That's true. I've been playing bagpipes since uh, probably 1975.
1: Yeah, and you're also the recipient of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal. What's that all about?
2: Well, I've been very active with my legion in Prince George, and one of the things that I did when we got our new cenotaph going was that I was involved with the process to investigate research and confirm and check all of of the names and the histories of all the people who were recorded on the cenotaph. I found some major errors, which was really shocking to me. Uh, As as I mentioned, I'm a historian, I have a, a, a graduate degree in military history, and this was one of the roles I did. I've been pretty active with the Legion for a number of years, as well as other aspects of community service. I was a chair of the Alpine Club of Canada, and I was quite actively involved in getting the primary reserve regiment, the Rocky Mountain Rangers, established in Prince George in a stint of approximately 30 years of lobbying. For that process, so I think that my presentation of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal was a culmination of my community service, which was recognized uh, by my then MP Bob Zimmer when he presented it to me in Parliament back then.
1: Wow, been uh, 2012, I guess. Fairly, fairly busy in the last few decades.
2: Well, I've uh, I've always believed in community service. My parents installed that into me at quite an early age. They were both they're both been very active in community service their whole lives. Uh, my mother in the hospital board and other other things. My dad was a city councilor for a number of years and involved in Rotary, uh, the Masons. Uh, he was a Shriner. He uh, played Santa Claus for the Elks Club. All sorts of things like that. And I've been a great believer in community service. And I think that that's probably one of the most important things any citizen can do in terms of civics and being a a responsible member of a community is to be involved.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you kind of touched on what your role is with the National Firearms Association. Uh, Could you maybe tell me and the people listening, uh, maybe give us a bit of history on the National Firearms Association, you know, sort of uh, how, when, and why the association sort of took form?
2: Sure. Uh, The National Firearms Association came about as the uh, joining of a number of firearms organizations in 1978 uh, under the leadership of uh, Bill Jones. Uh, Bill had started an organization called uh, the Firearms Owners Rights Organization or FARO and that and others merged to form Canada's National Firearms Association Has the national lobby organization. That was in 1978 and the key thing to fight at that time was Bill C-51. When Bill C-51 passed Uh, That organization sort of went into a dormancy for a couple of years until it was reconstituted in 1984 under the leadership of David A. Tomlinson and uh, uh, retired uh, Army Major uh, Ray Laycock uh, out of Calgary and Edmonton. And so they built up an organization which was very small, uh, but started to really get legs uh, in in the regime of uh, Brian Mulroney and Kim Campbell with her proposed bill of C-17, which was a, a a really draconian and a knee-jerk reaction to the technique shootings, and this banned a whole range of firearms by order and council, similar to what uh, Trudeau has done what the May first uh, ban of fifteen hundred different types of firearms, including many bolt-action firearms of of, uh, of for hunting use, that would be used for big 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 game, and. The organization grew steadily through those times. It uh, took another uh, bump in growth with the, uh, the Liberal Bill, Bill C-68. And uh, we saw a lot of activity with firearms movements, uh, hosting rallies. Uh, the Fed Up One, Fed Up Two rallies in Ottawa were probably the two largest, with tens of thousands of people going. Uh, we had our own uh, versions of those across the, the provinces. None of them changed anybody's mind. Uh, they, they were, in many respects, were sort of a catharsis, I suppose, where everyone went there, thought they had done something, went home, and didn't do anything else. The uh, organization uh, grow, has grown from that time. Uh, we we've had uh, a few changeovers in president uh, over a period. There was a, a, a one fellow who was there for a short time, early part of the of the. Uh, the Millennium, who who, uh, who tried to raise the profile. We got involved with the United Nations as a, an, an NGO. Uh, first of all, we were a, 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 a under the umbrella of the WFSA, and we did that from the early part of the 2000s. And then around 2013, 2014, we became a standalone non-governmental organization under ECOSOC at the UN. Uh, uh, the Economics and Social Committee of the United Nations. And we go there to advocate uh, for more rights for firearms owners in the international arena. Uh, we, we, this is usually under the auspices of the Arms Trade Treaty and this Program of Action in Small Arms and Light Weapons. Uh, we've been quite active with that. There's one other Canadian organization. CSSA that is involved in that as well. Uh, and Tony Bernardo and I uh, uh, go to those meetings and, and, or, or representatives from our organizations uh, to represent Canadian views and uh, where necessary, fight against our own governmental positions on various things and challenge those on the international uh, stage. So we're pretty busy with that. We have a pretty strong reputation for litigation. Uh, we've, we've engaged in court cases uh, both in support of and in, in opposition to various governments at various times. Uh, we've been very firm in taking stands against things like mandatory minimum sentencing, uh, which ties the hands of judges and removes discretion and also can have the unintended consequences of handing particularly harsh sentences to people who really didn't deserve those sentences. So we took that to court and won and the Supreme Court of Canada uh, uh, a few years ago now. Uh, I was personally involved with the uh, uh, rejigging and rewriting of the Explosives Act in in terms of its effect upon people who hand load ammunition and uh, who store ammunition at home for for whatever purposes they need, competitive and uh, hunting and so on. And managed to make, personally, I managed to get some significant changes to those regulations that were better to help people. Uh, Part of that, I brought people into the homes of firearms owners to show them exactly what kinds of quantities and and uses and storage methods were being used so that people from the explosives branch, who are primarily industry, got a better understanding of what that was about. We've also managed to forestall and stop legislative change on a number of occasions uh, uh, over bans of particular types of firearms. Uh, A lot of that effort has uh, finally... uh, been overturned by the imposition of the Ordering Council, which our group is challenging through a, a compelling client, which is the path we chose. We, we, we went with a, uh, uh, after interviewing several people, we found a, a, a very strong uh, client to be a good representative of uh, the, the firearms community in terms of her, her personal situation and the business which she, she owns with her husband. Uh, we did not want to be seen as the firearms lobby versus the government. We wanted to make this a, a, a an ordinary Canadian versus the government, but we, as we made it clear to her that she was not going to be at any cost uh, to do this, we were going to fully fund that case. So we were, we were glad to see that we were the first ones to file in May uh, after the order of council came down. And uh, we've been a, a, a significant leader in that particular process with the, the uh, legal firm of uh, uh, Friedman and Mansoor uh, taking charge of, of, uh, of that client, uh, Cassie Parker Premack, and with us intervening in the case to have our own uh, specific uh, concerns addressed under the leadership of our lawyer Guy Laverne.
1: Uh, wow. Yeah. Um... So a lot going on.
2: <laughs> oh, oh, there's tons going on. This never ends. I mean, this isn't my day job. Like I said, I teach history at a community college and this is, this is all. Uh,
1: so you're doing all this in your spare time.
2: This is my, spare it sounds time.
1: like it's a full-time job.
2: Well, in many respects, it's a passion. It's a, it's not a, it's, a, it's not a career. I, I mean, I, I would dearly love to wrap all of this up and just go hunting or shooting or, or, or something like that. But unfortunately, that's it's necessary that uh, myself and others like me, we have a very strong board of directors and an excellent office staff. I'm, I'm very proud of all of them. I, I mean, uh, I couldn't do anything I do without the strong support I get from our, our office in Edmonton and under the leadership of our general manager, Ginger Fournier, and the, the highly effective team that uh, we've built there, as well as our, our lobbyist, Charles Zatch, who's in Burlington, Ontario, who's full-time in-house lobbyist. We previously had uh, Fred DeLore working for us. He's currently the national campaign manager for the Conservative Party. Uh, Fred Fred, uh, opened a lot of doors uh, for us and and really did some great work. We're very grateful to all of his efforts. And I know he's going to be doing a a spectacular job in the upcoming federal election as well. as Everybody's talking about one. and We're we're well poised for that. And uh, yeah, we've got a good team.
1: Yeah, so how involved are you guys on, like, in the political aspect?
2: The NFA uh, engages in lobbying uh, all the time. We, our lobbying record is, is public knowledge. There's, there's two kinds of lobbying. You have uh, uh, the reportable lobbying, which is by a paid lobbyist, and then you have informal lobbying by constituents. And we've done both over the years. Uh, we, we certainly do informal and formal lobbying. Now, formal lobbying is lobbying that's, that must be reported. Uh, our r- reported lobbying is far beyond any other firearms rights advocacy uh, organizations lobbying. The record's on the lobbying website, and anyone can look that up if they so choose. And uh, we, we're, quite, we're quite pleased with the quantity and quality of our efforts, you know, engaging with uh, members of all the main parties to make sure that they understand our positions and that, uh, that we can find our friends and identify our foes, so to speak. Uh, when we when we do that activity, we are also the only part, the only third party that I'm aware of that filed election expenses in the uh, the last federal election uh, under the under the requirements to do so with Elections Canada. That's also something that's searchable and people can look up. We, we spent in excess of sixty thousand dollars in that effort. Uh, there are others who claim to spend a lot of money, but I don't see any lobbying. I don't see any Elections Canada reports indicating that on the, on the. Uh, on the uh, elections Canada site. So, you know, I think uh, that speaks for itself.
1: Is it on the political side? That's who you spend most of your time uh, fighting and lobbying against is uh, the politicians or is there a group that's opposing, you know, that's pressing for these gun bans, you know, somebody on the opposite side of the The, NFA.
2: The groups pressing for firearms bans are actually very tiny. Uh, Most Canadians really probably don't care a great deal one way or the other about firearms and firearms control. Or they have a misperception based on on sensationalism in media reports that they've built an image about. Uh, the the anti's, if one might want to call them that, tend to be very dogmatic, highly focused on their particular goals. And I, I see them at the United Nations. I see them. I see them domestically, and they're are a few a few small groups, but they are very tiny. They don't have a lot of. Uh, Uh, cachet Uh, and our groups our our NFA for example we have an excess of 70,000 members Uh, we're uh, very very committed we're very dedicated the the shooting is a more popular sport in Canada than hockey is which many people would be surprised to hear but there are more participants in the shooting sports including hunting and so on than there are in hockey and uh We're, we're not going to uh, just roll over and take this. Uh, The attacks on our culture, our heritage, our activities and our property are are not simply not acceptable. And uh, this is not an American position or anything like that. This is a Canadian position based on, you know, over, you know, 150 years of, of, of heritage as Canada's a country and, and hundreds of years of, uh, experience in with all of the culture and heritage that built this country, from Aboriginal people to the white uh, settlers that, that came and all of those who came after those people as, as well. So this is a, a, uh, a huge uh, cultural situation that is worthy of defense. And, and promotion, and that's what we're here to do. Our, our approach is really a three-pronged one. We, we engage in pol- politics, political action, encouraging people to join political parties, get involved in nomination processes, and to get out and vote for good uh, pro uh, property rights and freedom candidates who will support uh, firearms rights uh, initiatives. Uh, we're also legal. We engage in, in court action of, uh, of uh, provincial and national import to ensure that uh, people's rights are, are protected. We don't support individual court cases. Um, there are, if we did that, we'd be broken a few months. <laughs> but we, uh, we certainly pick and choose what we do to make sure that we're doing the best for the firearms owning community as well as for our organization. Uh, we r- vigorously defend our, our image, our corporate brand and, and, our, and our activities in the legal legal realm. And as well, we engage in uh, promotional and public relations processes in order to promote our organization and to promote our activities. Uh, We've recently been doing this with a uh, mail-out postcard campaign uh, in which we've highlighted the fact that firearms owners out there are not alone. We're well aware that uh, less than 5% of firearms owners in Canada actually get involved with any kind of organization, and we want to make sure that uh, we're reaching out to all of those people who may feel alone at different times or don't really understand all the issues or think it's they've got their particular fireman as long as that's okay they don't care about the rest of it and we need the, them to understand that both they're not alone and that there are others out there that also are worthy of their support and consideration And we encourage people to get involved either with their time or by uh, supporting us with with uh, financial donations yeah, involved with the local clubs.
1: So if only five percent of register of gun owners are actually members of
2: of Any either- firearms organization.
1: Yeah, and the right. two biggest ones obviously are the National Firearms Association and the CCFR.
2: No, the CC CSSA is probably the next largest. Uh, oh, is that right? Yeah, uh, 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 that other one is a splinter group from us from from uh, some disputes in 2015.
1: Oh, it's okay. Okay. We won't get into that then. Cause
2: uh, I'm quite happy to, if you want to, but it's probably not helpful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Let's <laughs> just keep it positive. So backing up a bit, you mentioned misperception um, within yeah. uh, Canadian households. I remember when I was, you know, a young kid, you know, in the late eighties, I used to be able to walk from my house to my friend's house with my 22 Plinkster on my back. You know, he had a, Uh, a house that backed onto crown land and there was no other houses. We'd go back there and we'd shoot cans. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned a lot of bills when like, I'm trying to put a timeline on when all of a sudden firearms became a huge problem in Canada. I don't
2: know. Firearms have never been a problem except in the eyes of politicians who saw uh, gun control as something they could either win big on or, or lose big on. Usually it's a loser for most politicians as it was for Kim Campbell and as it was for the Liberals in the C51 legislation, uh, every government that's brought in significant firearms legislation has has seen the effects of that cause them to fall in a subsequent election. So we've we've uh, been pretty active about fighting that. But where did what you and I grew up doing become a problem? Well, it became a problem uh, somewhere along the line where people saw images on TV. Uh, the Probably the, the biggest thing that drove gun control through the 70s and 80s was the high-profile uh, political assassinations in the 1960s in the United States. The Vietnam War was certainly a factor, and the steps taken in firearms control in the United States, which pressured Canadian politicians to do something similar north of the 49th parallel. Uh, that the gun, the American effort was called Gun Control Act 1968 or GCA 68. Uh, that drove Bill C-51 in Canada, which created the classification system or expanded the classification system of firearms as we know it into what basically uh, good guns, bad guns, and so on, uh, the prohibited class, restricted class, non-restricted, and then the non-firearm uh, class of, of, of these, uh, these things. And uh, some of that was rescinded by the subsequent conservative government uh, and then uh, Kim Campbell uh, went on her her uh, attack on people's rights with her Bill C80, which was soundly crushed, and and then morphed into Bill C17, which passed, which extensively banned hundreds of different types of firearms, and just based, and seized some of them without any any uh, uh, compensation whatsoever, and just uh, you know just merely trotted out. Uh, on people's property rights and and people's culture. And we found that fairly offensive. And I'm proud to say I helped see Kim Campbell uh, defeated in that uh, subsequent election. And and like I've always worked to make sure tyrants like that are showing the door.
1: Back to, you know, um, us walking around with a 22 Plinkster from over to your friend's house. Nowadays, you
2: like... You get a a boot on your throat and a muzzle in your mouth. I, I remember as an army cadet, uh, we'd sometime, we sometimes we used to do this, and that would never you'd never do this at nowadays the current current structures. I mean, Kim Campbell saw to that, and the way she she gutted the cadet program uh, in her in her short time as justice minister and, and uh, prime minister. Uh, but I I remember walking down to the uh, local range in the basement of the police station at the, at the post office in Prince George when it was there and it was not it's not there anymore, but I, you, we had a bring your own rifle day and you get your 22 and you'd walk downtown. And I remember a police officer stopping me the Sunday morning when I was walking downtown with this 22 rifle and he asked me what I was doing, where I was going. And I told him he would, Oh, okay, well, have fun. And away he went. That wouldn't happen now.
1: No, it wouldn't. And, that, ha- and
2: you can, and you can largely blame Kim Campbell for that.
1: Okay. So Kim Campbell Uh, refresh my memory when was Kim Campbell and she
2: was the uh, the justice minister in the Mulroney government uh, and at the time of 89 through 92 she had that short summer job as prime minister Mm -hmm. uh, and then lost the election in one of the greatest defeats in in Canadian electoral history over her her foolish campaign which uh, took a direct run at uh, Mr. Chrétien and his is a uh, facial paralysis. There was a poster that was put out by the conservatives, which I thought was very, the progressive conservatives, which is very stupid.
1: Yeah. I was pretty young, but I remember that.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. It was one of the dumbest marketing things ever done. I saw it as soon as I saw the first one, I looked at that. And I went, wow, is that ever dumb? Uh, and I mean, I, I was, I, I've, I've, I just, I couldn't believe that they would do something like that. Uh, her firearms control efforts uh, uh, agitated uh, I would I would actually go as far as to say millions of Canadian firearms owners, and uh, there was there was just no way that that could be let stand. Uh, that she had to be defeated soundly. I mean, a lot of us became involved in the Reform Party in those days, and promoted that very heavily as a means of making sure that we would uh, 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 get an option that would better pay attention and get rid of the corruption that was present in the Progressive Conservatives. And and uh, the we, well, of course we already felt great disdain for the highly corrupt liberals and that corruption of course is still very strong to this day.
1: So are you guys taking the same approach with the new like with the government that's in power today that you uh, took with we, Kim like the same approach that you took with Kim Campbell?
2: On... Oh, oh, absolutely. I, I mean, uh, I, I don't know if you've had a chance to see some of our our, our marketing efforts already, but we we regularly put out cartoons which are uh, direct attacks on the. The Trudeau Liberals and their policies. Uh, we have a very, very, very gifted uh, in-house cartoonist who does this work uh, for us on a contract basis, and uh, we've been we've been pretty pleased with the circulation that his cartoons and getting. One of them actually was picked up in the United States and went viral uh, down there, which, uh, which was a which is a great little little cartoon that resonated with many people. Uh, so. We've had some successes with that kind of marketing. We are also going to be engaging in significant election pre-writ advertising and also post-writ advertising in the next federal election. We're currently preparing our advertising campaign for that. We're we're going to work very hard to make sure that people become aware of the uh, the clown-like behavior that is resplendent with this liberal government and Mr. Trudeau.
1: Like, is that the biggest obstacle right now is just getting, uh, obviously, gun owners are obviously aware of this. And I always so have. Some are. Re-
2: some, some are, some are not. Yeah, some, some are, some
1: you, are, some you are. mentioned early earlier that, uh, you know, just because you don't hold that specific rival that was banned, that maybe some gunner, gun owners aren't in particular too worried about it now. Um, you know, I use the reference all the time. The lowest fruit on the on the tree always gets oh, hanging right? fruit. Yep.
2: Yeah, and and I I see that over and over again, Kevin. That uh, people don't understand that just because they're not the the flavor of the day, they're not the target of of the of the the time. That it doesn't mean they won't be next. And I I, I know that many firearms owners and and, and hunters out there are not uh, supporters of say the conservative party. Many of them support the NDP or Liberals, I I have friends that I hunt with who have such political views, but I think it's important for us to make sure that they understand that when they are voting for uh, Liberals or, 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 or other candidates that they need to make sure they realize what that will mean in terms of their ability to continue hunting, to be able to continue target shooting, be able to own and use firearms that they, they like to own and use, that they perhaps built themselves or, or custom designed or modified uh, to be something that is truly theirs. And that this attack on firearms and firearms rights ownership goes far, far beyond uh, mere uh, 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 politics. It's uh, it's deep seated and ideological, and it, it is a fundamental uh, indicator issue about what, government is prepared to take away. If they're prepared to take away your guns, Kevin, they're probably prepared to take away a whole bunch of other stuff. And I mean, during the the current difficult times we're in with the ongoing COVID-19 situation, we're certainly seeing government uh, taking great efforts to take away people's rights and freedoms. And any dissent about that is soundly stifled. So uh, this is not something that's new to firearms owners and the firearms rights advocacy community. That's for sure.
1: Um, I mean, obviously, everybody's aware of of the ban that happened in May.
2: I don't think everybody is aware of it. I, I like I say, I think there's a an awareness among a, a smaller proportion of firearms owners, but that awareness does not necessarily translate to the broader Canadian firearms owning public. I still run into people who have questions about this. So we had somebody go into one of the local gun shops the other day and say, and he brought a Weatherby Vanguard, a bolt action rifle. Designed for African safari hunting. And he said, has this been banned? And the the firearms owner had to say, well, or the firearms proprietor, the business said, well, actually, yeah, it has. Because it has the power over 11,000 joules of energy. And that's been specifically deemed to be a characteristic of something that's banned. And and this guy couldn't believe it. I mean, this is a rifle worth thousands and thousands of dollars.
1: Yeah, you know... (sighs) yeah i get it i mean even myself i don't you know that's a big list and um
2: it's a very big list and it's expanding all the time
1: oh they're adding to it
2: oh yeah they've been adding to it since may 1st they they've been going through their their uh uh, we want to ban this list and adding to it on the firearms reference tables uh, uh quite consistently ever since
1: so i don't get where the data that backs this up because i did uh, some investigating <laughs> on some stats and you know uh 20 it was 20% of all crime in Canada or 20% of all crime in Canada is um violent crime and then of that 20% uh 78% of that 20% there was no weapons involved
2: that's hands and fists exactly
1: yeah and, and then try,
2: try to take those away
1: yeah <laughs> yeah and then there was only 3% of that, that were gun related.
2: Exactly. And I, I think it's really important for your listeners to understand that gun control has absolutely nothing to do with stopping criminal activity. Nothing whatsoever. It has never been able to do that in any jurisdiction. And it is not about that. It is absolutely about civil disarmament and taking away people's property that the government has deemed that it does not want. Can ordinary yeah. Canadian stone.
1: Yeah, like out of all that crime, the number, the percentage of crime through guns was so minuscule. And now I'd be surprised if any of those, the gun-related crime was created by a legal gun.
0: Well,
2: what's a legal gun? I I, I don't think it's an issue about whether a gun is legal or not. And I think that goes back to buying into the classification system that the liberals created. I, I think that the issue is human behavior. It matters what individuals do with their property to cause harm, whether it's their fists, a rock, a knife, or whatever. So it's not a matter of legal and illegal guns. I I think that there really shouldn't be anything, such thing as an illegal gun, but there is certainly illegal possession. And I think what needs to be uh, discussed is uh, who is precisely not allowed to have firearms and why, and, Rather than trying to say this gun's a bad gun or this gun's, this gun's an illegal gun or this gun's a good gun or whatever, because that is a list that's easily expanded on. I hear people say all the time, well, this gun's never been used in a crime in Canada. Why are you going after that? Well, that's a really dangerous argument because tomorrow somebody could use that firearm in a crime and then your argument is completely uh, uh, undermined.
1: Yeah, well, I, I see your point because when I was looking up those stats, I noticed that there was more—the percentage was higher for um, violent crimes with a bat and with a knife than with a gun. Well, and we're not banning bat—we're not going to go banning no. bats and gu- or bats and knives. I mean, again, this is this is a person. You know, this is an issue we're dealing with society, not with it's,
2: a, it's people that make choices to do bad things, right? And I think that that's the issue. Is uh, we have a long, long history of jurisprudence in Canada, notwithstanding uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould's uh, unnecessary swath through the criminal code, in which she gutted all sorts of ancient rights and, and uh, expectations regarding things like juries and so on. Uh, we have a long history of innocent until proven guilty, and that's an important consideration. However, there are people out there who have proven through their behavior that they are dangerous and should not have access to firearms. And I'm not talking about someone who has uh, a, an administrative offense that they've come in violation of a this is a bad thing, this is a good thing issue in the Firearms Act. I'm talking about somebody who's sticking up and harming people, committing crimes against the person or property crimes. Uh, these, these, are, these are problematic. And these are people who should not be allowed to own and possess any sort of, of firearm. But it's not going to stop them from committing crime.
1: Yeah, don't we have something already in place that, that's similar to that right yes.
2: now? Yes, yeah, in the, for the large part of things we do. But things like licensing people and, and registering firearms, which are liberal gun control constructs, do nothing whatsoever to stop criminal activity. They don't. Yeah. A piece of paper beside me and my firearm does not stop me from making a bad choice tomorrow.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I mean doesn't history show that prohibiting something only increases its demand
2: yes that's absolutely what history shows the the, the alcohol prohibition efforts certainly uh enhanced criminal activity uh, if people want a thing they are going to be prepared to do whatever they can to get that thing whether it is alcohol firearms drugs anything else i mean you, you can you can see this with the so-called you know uh, north american war on drugs well that didn't really work out very well did it you you uh, you you create demand, and you cre- create an illicit community supporting that demand when you start doing prohibitions. And yeah. I, I mean, I listened to some announcements in the in the in the news recently, where a, a, a an unnamed source I think was quoted as saying something like, "We know people are shooting these firearms, and we want that to stop. So we're gonna we might let them keep them, but they have to keep them." in their house or maybe deactivated or this or that. Well, I'm sorry, I'm not deactivating any of my guns and I'm not giving them to the government. They didn't, there's no such, a buyback is not a buyback. They didn't own them. They never owned them. And they're not going to be able to persuade me that they have the the right to tell me what I can and can't own of something that I purchased quite legitimately, legally, and have never caused any harm to any person or property. So I, I think that there's a certain mark of defiance that needs to be much more strongly heard from a broader base of the Canadian firearms, or even just someone like me spouting off about it.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think the government's going to be hard pressed to, if they think they they can get any, uh, if, if every Canadian gun owner is just going to hand over their gun. I mean, that's,
2: not going, that's if, not going to happen. That's not going to
1: happen. I mean, I have a I have a lot of guns in, uh, you know, in my gun safe, and some of those hold a lot of nostalgic value to me i mean they exactly. were given to me they were given to me by my wife's dad who's no longer around uh that gun is going to be handed to you know my grandchildren now how do you put how are they going to put in the value on that i mean
2: well they they can't and 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 i think it's a difficult thing for the courts to try to quantify as well because they tend to work in dollar cents and balance sheets so the order and council challenge that uh, we're we, we filed with, with uh, Cassandra Parker premac and KKS tactical is certainly one of the the lead ways in which we're going to try to promote and, and point out that this is not the way to proceed like going around and seizing 1500, different types of firearms which amounts really to millions of guns in Canada and I, I think, that has people become to understand exactly what the government is doing, and they, they need to realize there are no good guns, there are no bad guns, they're just firearms, and they're, they're all capable of being misused by bad people making bad choices. Then we're going to see that uh, they're going to become less tolerant of this sort of uh, uh, idiocracy that is uh, running, running our, 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 our country, and that it needs to be stopped, it needs to be challenged, it needs, needs to be replaced with some, some sense.
1: Yeah, it's starting to sound very socialist to me. I think.
2: Well, then I think I've heard that from many people. It's certainly authoritarian, uh, and I, I mean, I, I remember last year walking into you know the the local stores, the 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 Save Ons and the and the superstores and 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 the WalMarts and seeing all those empty shelves, and I, I looked at that and I went, "Wow, that's panic." Yeah, and that's that's a serious thing, and I know. Uh, you yeah know, looking at history, that pandemics tend to go three to five years, and I know that people are suffering because of what's going on, and this suffering cannot continue. And I, I, I think here's here we have this convergence of the government uh, becoming very authoritarian with regards to its dealings with people over this particular current health situation, at the same time as they're trying to take away everybody's firearms, which many people. See, is very important for personal protection and defense and as a means of gathering food at a time when when food may be less accessible. And I just look at this and I shake my head and I say, this is history just repeating itself again and again.
1: Yeah, but besides all that, it just seems like you're taking away my rights like Absolutely. this is this is supposed to be a free country.
2: Well, yeah, and and it's 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 supposed to be and all of a sudden we're finding that that there's a very thin veneer between uh, what we're allowed to do and what we think we're allowed to do, right? There there's this 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 uh authoritarian line. And if the government suddenly decides well we we don't want you to do that anymore. and we saw this in High River several years ago. We were talking about Dennis Young, uh, who passed away recently, who and all the work he did to try to uh, uh, make people aware of what had happened in High River when the when the floodwaters came up and people had their homes broken into and their firearms and ammunition seized from their homes, uh, regardless of their level of, of storage and security, and it was a, it was very much about getting the guns. And I, I I'm sorry, this is seizing people's property. This is a property rights issue as much as anything else. If uh, the, the government decided tomorrow that you couldn't have gasoline-powered vehicles or anything that ran on oil, and they decided to ban that, and uh, you, that meant you wouldn't be able to drive X, Y, or Z, or you couldn't get access to fuels that would, would serve, your, serve your, uh, your needs. Well, that might be a problem for a few people, but you know there are others who wouldn't be a problem for it, and they probably would just ignore it and, and carry on. Well, it's not much different than firearms
1: yeah so so what was your reaction last May when they when the government came out with this list of bad firearms? I
2: called I called up our lawyers and started talking about what we could do about it yeah that was my reaction and I, and I also started uh, talking to our, our board of directors about what we were going to do in the next federal election that's that was my reaction like right away because they're not getting my stuff. And uh, I know they're not going to. I I know many, many people have told me they will not be uh, getting their stuff either.
1: And I think I've heard the phrase "over my dead body" a number of times.
2: Yeah, I've I've heard similar sentiments expressed, and I and I know that uh, that for some of them those those sentiments are sincere, and others that will probably you know they, they would when pressed they would probably just do what what they're told. But I think that the sentiments don't have to be particularly widespread to have broad effect. And I I mean. I, I'm, not, I'm not one to advocate violence or anything like that. I want to make that really, really clear. I mean, I've been a longtime uh, uh, supporter of, of, of our, our, our system of government. I'm, I'm a monarchist. I, I, I believe that we have a, one of the best systems of government in the world. And I, I hate to see it being abused as it is by the current government. In the, in the way that they're abusing it to uh, fulfill an ideological agenda, which is not acceptable to broad numbers of Canadians.
1: There's a lot of firearms on this list. And, you know, I don't understand the reasoning behind there's it. There's a lot of firearms
2: that are included that aren't listed by, by the jewels and the bore diameter limitations. I mean, we're, you know, you're, you're even looking at things like black powder cannon, which certainly have the jewels and the power and are putting out a projectile that, that people are reacting you know, using in reactant, reactant groups. And it's pretty clear that none of that stuff is being used to stick up seven 11s. So, uh, you know, this isn't about, this is not about crime control. That's nothing to do with it whatsoever.
1: Yeah. It seems like the government, they'd be happy just taking away all firearms from Canadians. Yes. they absolutely Or this government agree. anyway, I should say.
2: Well, yes, I, I think that's absolutely the case. And it's it, like I said, they've been working on a civil disarmament agenda for over 60 years and this is just another manifestation of it and it's a time for canadians to stand up and say no we are not going to take this anymore and to be very very clear about that and to contact their elected representatives and give them that message
1: yeah we got we got to draw the line in the sand but i mean well, where, I do think, in, where do you draw the line and where do you draw the line in the sand
2: well i i i prefer the line to be drawn in drying concrete uh, because, uh, you know, the problem with sand is it tends to shift and be ad- adjusted. And I-, I think that there's a need for people to start saying no and meaning it. And, the, the, you know, you can, you can have chit chats around the coffee shop all day long and not change anything, but people who want to change things, they need to step up, they need to get involved in the political process, they need to join political parties, they need to be there to select their candidates, they need to uh, donate their time to help these candidates get elected. And if they can't do that, that, they need to donate their money. And they need to support National Firearms Association uh, and and to to make sure they support their local shooting clubs and move forward and support local businesses that are uh, in favor of promoting their rights and freedoms. They've got to do all of those things. You know, we've got people who are living off of the, the public resource, who are laying down authoritarian style rules for people, Without regard to the fact that the money that they are being paid comes from people who have businesses, who will go to work, have to meet payrolls, have to have to have to uh, feed their families, and are being limited in their ability to do so, and you you can't keep printing money to hand out and pretend that that's going to solve the problem.
1: Yeah, because have you that- guys been able to put together like a dollar value of the affected people and businesses by this this last law?
2: Ooh, that's a that's a grand question, Kevin. Uh, I have had some people looking into it, and we've had quite a range of uh, of uh, estimates of costs. Uh, we think this is going to cost billions of dollars, not millions. Uh, the implementation of the program, as has stated, has been shifting around a bit. Uh, they recently contracted IBM to take a, a role in designing the program, and I would strongly encourage anyone who holds IBM stock to dump it. Uh, and to make sure, or, or at least make sure that they send a strongly worded letter to the head of uh, uh, IBM Canada to tell them how disgusted they are that IBM would be participating in uh, a a gun grab and uh, the seizure of of, of uh, property from Canadians. IBM has a long history of providing uh, records for authoritarian regimes. Uh, they did so in Europe in the 1930s and 40s, and they certainly. Uh, need to be taken to task for their support of this new liberal gun grab—a uh, program which was not uh, readily bid on by a lot of other groups—and I'm very concerned that I, that IBM's ideological structure in, in this is uh, is not helpful to Canadians.
1: So, if the government was going to move forward with a buyback, what kind of dollar value are we talking? This is going to call the cost the taxpayers. Are we talking, you know, millions, billions, trillions?
2: Well, so you've got 1,500 different types of firearms. Some of these firearms are worth tens of thousands of dollars.
1: Yeah, I mean, a collector could have, you know, uh, a cabinet full of over a million dollars worth of guns.
2: Uh, Very easily. I I know people who own over a thousand firearms in their personal collections. And a a good number of those firearms would be considered to now be prohibited under this when they were previously not even restricted. And... I I just look at this and I think, you know, this entire campaign is ideological. You know, people say, oh, they're just being stupid. No, they're not being stupid. They're being completely malicious. And I think the sooner that firearms owners understand that this is a very direct attack on our way of life, on our culture, on our belief structure and our property, then we're going to be well on our way to pushing back and defeating it.
1: Mm hmm. I, I think you mentioned it already, um, only 5%. I think if we can get that up to 100% and I just have positive conversation, the taxpayers in this country who don't own firearms, when they find out that the government is going to spend over a billion dollars on a buyback plan, when we're already in over a trillion dollars of debt right now from COVID, you know, yep. they're going to have a little bit of a harder time with that.
2: Well, I, I think so. And I I, I I you know, you hear sometimes, well, if it only saves one life, this isn't going to save life, this is gonna cost lives to do this this program. Uh, the, the, uh, the 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 whole the whole program is a completely unnecessary exercise. Gun control itself has been an unnecessary exercise in this country right from the beginning. And it has always been about targeting groups, it has always been about an ideological consideration. Uh, on perceived threats uh, to government or to government uh, programs that they wanted to stop and change. It's been used as a racist program to to uh, keep firearms out of the hands of native peoples, for example. This was certainly done in the post-confederation post-confeder- era and after the the two rebellions in the in, in the. Uh, in Manitoba, the 1870 and the 1885. Certainly there were efforts made to limit access uh, to firearms and types of firearms to the Métis and Aboriginal peoples in those areas. That's what gun control is about. It is not about stopping criminals from uh, engaging in gang behavior or anything like that, they have the ability to go after gangs, and they they're, they're vigorous about it. My hats off to law enforcement who who uh, go at often at great personal risk to try to stop gang activities and criminal violence. Uh, that's that's an important aspect of our society, but I think Peel's policing principles are important as well, and that the police and the citizens are one and the same, and they must. Uh, remain to be respectful of each other and to, to, to heighten that tie. Otherwise you very quickly see police being pitted against the citizens, which I think this government has really been actively encouraging. And I think it's reprehensible.
1: Yeah. Well, it seems to me, and I mean, i'm obviously not the only person who thinks this but if the government obviously not <laughs> if the uh, if the government put as much effort into taking illegal guns and putting that effort and money into crime prevention that we'd be in a lot you know better spot than we are today
2: well and again gun control isn't about crime prevention it never has been it never will be it's often marketed that way but that's not what it's really about and 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 certainly uh, if you as you as you did, you looked at the crime stats, and it's it, it, c- criminal violence involving firearms is statistically negligible compared to other problems. It, it's it's sensationalism, right? Uh, you know, I have seen this over and over again. They they have a they have a, a a drug bust. They bust a drug house. They have a few firearms. They put the firearms on the table, and they have some bags of drugs. Well, the bags of drugs aren't very sexy or cool. They're just you know that could be a bag of flour. Who knows? And uh, but when you start having firearms on the table and they look dark and they look scary and, and uh, people may not be familiar with different types of firearms and they're going, oh, that's terrible. Nobody should have that. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, you, you know, you start looking at people who are engaged in sports shooting activities, or recreational shooting, or perhaps their military personnel who want to make sure they can keep their standards up in the absence of any significant budgetary expense uh, supporting their marksmanship abilities. Uh, or you're looking at people who are engaged or members of the police or or various uh, security companies who keep their skills up with their personal collection or if they're people who just like to shoot well I'm sorry this is the kind of stuff people own and this is not okay the other thing is firearms are not complicated technology and if you've gone, gone onto a, 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 a tour of a, a major penitentiary and you ask to see their their collection of of uh, contraband weaponry, you'd be shocked at some of the things that inmates are able to construct out of very rudimentary items in uh, to make it, all sorts of things, including firearms that are functional.
1: Yeah, I watched those uh, those shows on TV, uh, you know, inside the prisons and stuff. Yeah, it's pretty surprising what those guys come up with.
2: Humans are inventive, we're inventive characters, we have big brains and clever hands. And well, yeah,
1: we're it? resourceful. And if you if you want to commit a crime, you're going to do it with or without, God. I mean, okay, you're not going you're, to walk into a Bank with a thirty odd six bolt action with three in the clip, and you know what I mean. <laughs> like, well, uh,
2: you know, it, it seems ridiculous to me that somebody would walk into a bank with a Weatherby Vanguard and a heavy caliber that's worth thousands of dollars to, to try to take a few dollars when they could just sell the rifle. You know, it, you know. Yeah. It's, it, but this is a mentality of the cru- the criminal, right? They they are often desperate. They may be addicts. They 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 may have a a a a, a, a recidivist nature. They may be uh, engaged in criminal activity has a habitual uh, process and they really don't care about silly rules about this gun is illegal or that gun's illegal they're going to go and kill somebody or they're going to go rob someone they're, they don't care about these administrative type criminal uh, offenses which are often bargained away to get guilty pleas on the main offense
1: yeah I think when you're breaking the law you're not really considering one aspect of the law over the other you're just breaking the law
2: yeah, the, it's 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 been shown again and again that the primary deterrent to crime is is whether or not they believe they'll get caught. If they don't believe they're going to get caught, then they're not deterred from get from from committing the crime. Exactly. So that It has nothing to do with this. You know, I'm you know, it, it's against the law to do this, or it's against the law to do that, or what the punishment is. The punishment doesn't matter. It's about getting caught.
1: I agree. So. um... You know, right now, I guess is more important than ever to to join the NFA. Um, you mentioned ways guys can get involved. They can join the NFA. They can talk to their local MLA. Is there anything else?
2: Yeah. Well, firearms owners in Canada can go to our website nfa.ca. They can join there. We have a one eight seven seven number they can call. They can speak to one of the one of the fine folks at our office to to help them get set up if they prefer that. Uh, that, that information of course is is on our, our website. Uh, we do have uh, staff that are working good regular hours. I can I can uh, I, I can I can say I'm I'm very, very honored to be working with such dedicated people as I am in, in the National Firearms Association. Uh, I've got the one 800 number. It's one 877 818 393 That's 877 877- 818 0393 to call our office. That's our Edmonton headquarters where we have our staff there. They can go to our website and join there. But, but definitely, at the very minimum, if you're out there and you have firearms, you're not alone. There are lots of people in this country who own firearms, far more than those who have licenses to own them. There's something like 2.2 million people with licenses, but there's probably at least 5 million to 7.5 million people owning the over 22 million firearms that are in canada uh based on the import export records over decades
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i'm gonna put all your guys's information and links to all your stuff in the show notes um so people are gonna be able to just click on that link and get a hold of you guys and um yeah i had a question for you that's not related to this particular gunman but um, people have asked me in the past, and I have no idea. I mean, I guess I probably could have looked it up. But when did when did the handgun become illegal in this country?
2: Oh, you mean when did handguns re- be required to be registered? It was 1935, if I've got that correctly? And that again was based on American law at the time. It was a, a reaction to American law and the and the gangster kind of era that was going on down there, and the activities of, of various bank robbers and popular. Uh, popularly known criminals, they decided they wanted to control handguns and they also decided to prohibit sound suppressors. Uh, Sound suppressors are perfectly legal in many countries in the world because they are deemed to be safety equipment to reduce felt uh, decibels. They do not completely silence the noise of a report of a firearm.
1: No, and I think it's actually illegal to not have a suppressor or hunt with a suppressor in some locations of the world.
2: Yeah, and I think that's the case because when you get complaints around ranges, it's often about noise complaints. And it it seems ridiculous to me that a piece of safety equipment like that would not be something that would be uh, uh, encouraged rather than made prohibited. And this dates back to the 1930s again and the whole gangster. And part of it's been perpetuated by the myth of Hollywood that somehow these things make the report of a shot completely, you know, like a, almost negligible. And that's simply not true. Yeah. It, it, again, it's based on sensationalism, mythology, and, uh, and false perceptions, which have been perpetuated in media. So none of this stuff is 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 uh, it should be illegal. But yeah, handguns have been restricted in classification since the service.
1: Yeah, I think I get asked all the time too. I, you know, myself, it'd be nice when you're hunting in the backcountry to be able to carry a handgun. I mean
2: especially uh, if you're a bow hunter I, I, yeah I, well I, I
1: i spend a lot of time bow hunting and i mean i carry pepper spray and i also carry a 12 gauge in my backpack but i mean still if you had a i know i, I talked to some guys and i know some some people down in the states and they have you know a handgun on their chest just in yep. i mean especially now with the grizzly bear band we're going to start seeing a lot more bears in the backcountry
2: Oh, don't get me started on the grizzly bear ban. I'm a, I'm a core examiner <laughs> in British Columbia, uh, you know, through the BC Wildlife Federation's excellent uh, hunter training program. And I teach hunter safety training courses, among other things that I do. And one of the things that I've been a, a, a strict uh, an ab, uh, advocate for is to, to bring back the grizzly bear hunt because of its problem that it's going to be directly related to what you do. There is no threat to the grizzly bear population from reasonable hunting, whether by resident hunters or guide outfitters. And this is necessary to keep more aggressive animals in check. And what we're going to see is we're going to see more and more negative interactions between people and big bears, and somebody's going to get killed. And then I think they should be pointing their finger right in the, in the face of the NDP government that brought that in.
1: Yeah, well, I I know um, I have a construction business here in Kelowna, and I talk to a lot of homeowners that you know they're the new development borders the wildlife. They're having a lot of interactions with uh, black bears right now, and they, oh, yeah, you know, like why are we having so much interaction with black bears? I say, well, it's because there's an increasing number of not only black bears, but there's also an increasing number of grizzly bears, and they don't see the correlation between the increase of grizzly bears. Um, I mean, black bears don't like grizzly bears. If anything you're going to push the black bears. We're going to have more before yeah. we have any more in, uh, conflict grizzly bears and humans. I think we're going to have more conflicts with black bears and humans. As because, the black
2: bears are pushed out of, grizz, out of these ranges that the grizzly bears are reestablishing for themselves. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, I think you're exactly right. And in many cases, black bear interactions with humans are much more dangerous because uh, of, of the false perception that you can just scare away a black bear all the time. And that's simply not true.
1: Yeah, until you know, until, until recently, I've I've had a lot worse encounters with black bears than I had with a grizzly bear.
2: So. Me too. Although I've had a couple of encounters with grizzly bears that were very interesting as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's why I said till recently, but.
2: Uh... And we're going to see more and more of that as people continue to make uh, these knee-jerk decisions based on ideology rather than science.
1: Yeah. Well, and I've noticed too in the backcountry that this year I've seen grizzly bears in an area I haven't seen grizzly bears in that area ever. I've never seen a sign of grizzly bear. And I've covered every inch of that. I've had trail cameras in there. You know what I mean? And I'm not driving around. I'm not driving around in a vehicle. I'm hiking in the backcountry. And I've seen grizzly Uh, bears in areas that have never held grizzly bears before.
2: I think you're exactly right. And I think that the ability for people to be uh, carrying a handgun for wilderness protection. Is certainly something that needs to be uh, revisited. This used to be common practice up until the 1970s in British Columbia and other areas in Canada, and nowadays, you know, you 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 just simply won't get issued a, a permit. But nonetheless, uh, people who are hunting uh, would certainly benefit from being able to pack a handgun for protection when they're packing game. Or when when their rifle is shouldered, or there's all of a sudden jumped by something. I, I have uh, one friend who was attacked by a cougar many years ago, and he was fortunate to have a, a, a .22 that was uh, accessible because he was clearing his trap line, and he had killed a cougar with a .22, which you know usually if you were hunting, you would not be shooting a cougar with a .22 long rifle cartridge. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is the uh, this is the circumstances that is not understood well by many in large centers.
1: And yeah, well, unfortunately, in BC, that, that, by that's our our issue is that, you know, a grizzly bear is not going to walk into downtown Vancouver or Victoria. So, um, unfortunately, right. for the people who like to go into the backcountry, this is, yeah, it's going to be a fight.
2: Well, sure. that's right. And and I mean, their answer to that is, well, then just don't go, right? They don't say that, you know, that's for the animals, not you. And, and that's the whole preservationist versus conservationist attitude. Uh, you know, which which I think colors that debate. I mean, I, I, you and I are both conservationists who believe that people are part of the environment and we believe in responsible use of resources and the, the, the continued support of habitat for game. Uh, preservationists just think you can pull people out of the equation and let everything be and it'll be fine and they're wrong.
1: Yeah, well, they're, they're, there's going to be a big reality check because, you know, right now they're pushing to stop predator hunting eventually yeah. there's going to be no ungulates left there's going to be so many predators they're going to have nowhere else to get their food they're, we're going to see a, you know there's going to be a big big awakening i think you know if if the well, path that, that they're set on continues
2: that's exactly right cabin and I, I i mean i had this discussion with a friend of mine the other day about wolf hunting i was going to go out and, and go looking for wolves and coyotes in an area where i know the farmers are they're very concerned about attacks on their animals. And and one of the responses that this person threw at me was, well, you know, the animals got along fine before we got involved in messing with their, with their situation. And I go, well, hang on a second here. We are part of this. And if you understand succession and how populations cr- uh, go up and down and fluctuate, and you understand that there's a low point for an ungulate population, a, a crash, and there are lots of predators, the predators will drive the crash faster as they eat the remaining animals. And that can lead to a, uh, a lack of these animals for many years to, to, before that population becomes viable again. Now, we're seeing this with mountain caribou, for example, uh, in, in some areas of the province. Some areas are doing a little better, but uh, you, you're, you're seeing these interactions. Access is a big uh, debatable issue all the time on this. And, I, you know, I'm I'm, I'm sorry, but there are times you indeed need to get control of these predators. And the idea of of stopping uh, predator hunts is completely asinine and foolish. And it's going to be more problems.
1: Yeah, I agree with you 100%. But I'm going to let you go here because I feel like we're going to go down a rabbit hole and I'm going to. We're going to be sitting here talking for another two hours.
2: I, I, I very much enjoyed our conversation, Kevin, and I hope we can have another one sometime. Maybe when you're up in Prince George or I'm down in Kelowna.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, I'm going to put all your guys' information about how people can join the NFA and uh, and get a hold of you guys in the show notes. And there'll be a link to your guys' webpage on my webpage. So again, thanks for, for stopping by and uh, keep up the good work.
2: Thank you, Kevin. All the best. Take
0: care. Okay.